from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. Yeah. I had read that it was against Jewish law to cause pain, suffering, torture, abuse to a living creature. So how can some of these people in the film, or people that you know in real life, how can they reconcile that with the practice of circumcision? So it's true that there are Jewish laws that govern um, the inflicting of pain on animals and living creatures. Um, the most obvious one that comes to my mind is called Aver Min Hachai in Hebrew, and it refers to the fact that in Jewish law, you're not allowed to tear a limb off of a living creature. Tsar balei chayim is a general principle in Jewish law about not causing pain to other creatures. But um, as with many other Jewish principles, um, that circumcision would seem to go against, um, there is an exception around this one practice. And uh, historically, that was built over time. Um, in large part due to all sorts of historical influences, including um, sort of Christian pressure. Uh, and in early Christianity, of course, um, the early church fathers uh, used circumcision as a way of talking about why the Jews were, you know, problematic and they should follow Christ and that Christ had fulfilled the law and they didn't need to be doing these silly things anymore. Um, and in response to that, the rabbis ensconced this practice in a very profound and deep way in the tradition. And, um, I mean, there are many, many sayings in the Jewish tradition about um, the, the great thing that circumcision is. And so, yeah, this one practice, although it would contradict something like that, uh, I mean, technically, of course, it's, we're not talking about animals, we're talking about people, so it's not exactly the same thing. But the spirit of the law would contradict this in a number of instances, including... Um, and this is very important, doesn't get t spoken of a lot, but um, Jewish law is extremely uh, insistent on not doing anything that could possibly lead to death. And we know, and the rabbis knew, that circumcision caused death, that um, deaths from circumcision were, uh, and I, I would imagine, more commonplace in, um, in times before modern medicine. And we know from... Uh, the Talmud that the rabbis were very well aware that uh, children died from this practice. There's a discussion about whether or not a woman has to circumcise her third child if two of her previous children died from circumcision. So they, they were aware. Um, but in general, uh, you know, Sabbath observance, which is one of the, the central, most important things in religious Jewish life and has been since the time of the rabbis, um, Sabbath observance can be suspended to save a life. And there are many other instances in Jewish law where anything that, that has the remotest possibility of leading to death is, is against the law. But, again, we have the circumcision exception. So, it's a good, it's a good question, it's, uh, but it's, I mean, it's a fact of Jewish law. I've, I've been reading Marked in Your Flesh, we were talking about that before, and I'm, I'm at the point where in the late 1800s, a lot of um, Jewish physicians started to come out with these writings about the health benefits of circumcision, and and I 
just wonder if subconsciously, it was touched upon a little in the film, but I wonder if subconsciously they were kind of driven to do that to sort of justify the practice in their own mind or maybe outwardly among other people, also to feel a little bit more included with other people that, that Gentiles would be following these recommendations to circumcise because it's so beneficial for their health. Yeah, I mean, I think Len Glick does a really good job of walking a very tricky and fine line in the film. Um, and again, he's Jewish, I'm Jewish. These are things that we can get away with saying because we're Jewish. For whether right or wrong, that's the way our culture works uh, in terms of what's politically correct, what's acceptable. So we're Jewish, we can say these things without being accused of anti-Semitism. We might be accused of being self-hating Jews, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, but... You know, Len's not the only person who's brought this to my attention, and there are people who uh, are familiar with the history of circumcision in the United States, not necessarily Jewish, sensitive to not wanting to come across as anti-Semitic, who have told me in confidence off-camera that it's really hard to avoid noticing the number of Jewish names um, that are prominent in the history of promoting circumcision in the United States. And I think what Len says um, rings true to me, which is... Um, you know, you have this cultural history of being ridiculed and abused for a particular practice for millennia, literally millennia. And all of a sudden, um, you know, you have a place of prominence in a profession that for whatever reason now believes that it's beneficial and you can do something about um, sort of reversing that trend. Um, even if you're not trying to do it explicitly for that reason, it, it would be hard to imagine that on some subconscious level that's not playing a role. Did you ever know of any uh, Jewish children who were ostracized for not being circumcised? I mean, what exactly were the penalties? Is that... Is that the is that the reason why fathers don't want their sons um, to be intact because they're afraid that they will suffer, or is it more a passion for the uh, religious history? Well, it certainly seems to be a reason given, um, which I think is important to distinguish from any notion of the reason, um, and that applies in general to circumcision and all reasons given for circumcision. Uh, I think cultural practices have a tendency of sort of collecting rationales as they roll along, if you will. Um, but certainly there's an imagined um, consequence. You saw it from very educated Jews presented in the film, including my father, who is, you know, the top 1% of knowledgeable Jews in the world. Um, some of the rabbis seem to, to have this notion that there is that there are dire religious consequences uh, to not being circumcised as a Jewish male. And there are a number of points I want to make about this. Number one, I don't, I am not aware of any practical religious exclusion that an intact Jewish male uh, would experience. Contrast this with Sabbath observance, um, in which someone who's not Sabbath observant is not fully trusted in a Jewish court of law, cannot be a witness at a person's marriage, cannot um, be a supervisor for kashrut to make sure that something's kosher. And you start to see something very interesting emerge here that largely, and I'm still looking, and I may, along this tour, if I have a rabbi come and say, no, actually, there's this other thing. 
But as far as I know, the only exception of what an intact Jewish male can't do religiously and ritually is partake in what's uh, called the sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb, which is a sacrifice that hasn't been brought in over 2,000 years and won't be brought again until the temple is rebuilt. Um, outside of that single exception, I have not seen a single ritual religious exception for intact Jewish males. Now, having said that, um, social consequences, there are some. Um, political consequences, there are some. Uh, there are certain rabbis who will not uh, willingly give uh, a bar mitzvah or allow the use of their synagogue or officiate at a bar mitzvah if they know that the boy who's being bar mitzvahed is intact. No basis in Jewish law whatsoever. I mean, none. But that's a political reality today. There are some day schools who will not allow children to attend without uh, showing their circumcision certificate. A real consequence. The shaming thing that you hear both on the non-Jewish side and the Jewish side, um, I don't, I think it's overblown. I don't know of a lot of guys, and I've spoken now to a number of intact men along the way who grew up in the United States intact, and none of them seem to have serious problems. But let's take for granted for a second that there may be some issue of shame because of being different or whatever. Um, I think it's like what Raja Halwani, the philosopher in the film, said. The question is not whether or not people feel shame about something. The question is whether that shame is merited or not. And I'd want to believe that if I'm going to raise a, ch a child in this world, they're going to be different for a whole lot of reasons. And if they can't, if I haven't instilled in them the ability to withstand um, you know, some of the slings and arrows that come from being different, then I'm not doing my job as a parent very well, so. The female rabbi that you were talking to in there, did you mention to her at any point in time off camera about the fact that no medical organization in the world recommends routine infant circumcision? I mean, she seemed so, supposedly so willing to accept contrary information. She's so set on all the medical benefits, but if that was the case, then why don't any medical organizations recommend it? And what was her response to something like that? So Rabbi Donnie Aaron, who's no longer the head of the Reform Brit Milah program, at the time that I interviewed her, she was the head of this umbrella organization that sort of controlled the entire reform movement's uh, Brit Milah program. Um, she relies on a very selective set of quote-unquote experts um, for her information about circumcision, and they all happen to be the few sort of circumcision proponents that remain in the world. Um, and there are a number of circumcision proponents out there um, who uh, advocate circumcision, you know, supposedly for the health benefits that they see in it, but they're sort of very active and strident in promoting it and fighting intactivists. Um, so she had a very sort of selective way of approaching it, it was kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. She wasn't, in my experience of the information that she was trying to get me to read, for example, she sent me like a whole bunch of essays to read as we were in the process of going back and forth. And they were all very, you know, from this very select small group of physicians who were strong and strident proponents of the practice. Did you get the feeling that she and other pro-circumcision physicians, um, who believe that there are health benefits are more concerned about the potential health benefits than the actual damage? 
I have to be honest with you, I didn't encounter a lot of pro-circumcision physicians. Um, the two physicians that I went to, um, now I should mention that Len Glick, Leonard Glick is, a, is, a, is an actual physician, he's a medical doctor, in addition to being an anthropologist and a professor. My father is a peripheral neurologist. Um, and then the two that I explicitly asked, um, you know, Dr. Marks and Dr. Mizells, um, none of those people seemed to think that this had any significant medical benefit. And I mentioned in the film, and I still think this is remarkable, Dr. Marks and Dr. Mizells perform circumcisions regularly. They must have done in their careers thousands of them. And they still say that this is not medically necessary. And I think that's still a majority position except on the absolute fringe of the pro-circumcision um, proponents, most people agree that this is not necessary. Whether there happens to be some kind of benefit that this or that, some people, you know, in especially, and this is particularly in the United States, will try to tell you something about penile cancer or sexually transmitted diseases or all of these, you know, so-called scientific reasons that have kind of snowballed over the last hundred years. Um, and it's, it's, this is something that's really interesting to me too. It's never like one thing. You, you always get like, like all of these different reasons um, that betrays a kind of ignorance of the history of circumcision in this country and how every generation had a different rationale that was debunked at some point before a new rationale arose to take its place. But circumcision proponents today will just sort of give you the laundry list, um, completely ignorant of, of the, the problematic nature of the data that they're referring to. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do like circumcision proponents like Donnie Aaron, uh, like Rabbi Shmuley Boteach, who I debated uh, earlier in the summer. They, they seem to just not understand or care about the sexual damage that I'm talking about. Um, and I don't know how to explain that other than maybe they don't get it or they don't care so much or they don't think it's such a big deal or sex isn't so important. I, I don't know how to explain it. All I can tell you is that, yeah, they, they, that doesn't seem to carry much weight with those people for whatever reason. I had a conversation with someone uh, via email and she has kind of, you know, seen the light. Not that she was ever really in favor of circumcision, but she's broached the subject with her husband, and he's cut. And when she mentioned him, the, the, the sexual damage involved, he then seemed to be, well, if that's the case, then I definitely want that for my son because, um, you know, it's such a struggle, you know, against the flesh, and I don't want my son to be tempt, you know, so maybe, maybe that's why it doesn't seem to matter to some people. Maybe they feel like it's a good thing if if the if the, if the child has been harmed sexually that way, then they won't be so apt to maybe stray or do something. Yeah, it's that's an interesting idea. I mean, we in this country have gone through over the last century a change in the way we look at sex. Uh, from the time when circumcision started in this country and sex was seen as a negative thing, something to be overcome, to you know, the sexual revolution where we started to where it's now taken for granted for the most part that sex is a good thing and it's not something to be fought. Um, but having said that, there's always, you know, there's never clean breaks in history. There's, history is like a, like an onion, right? It's got layers. 
And there's always going to be some of the older ideas that survive even in a new age. And I think that that's fair to suggest that there are some, there are many people who are still um, in some way influenced in a profound way by uh, previous generations' understanding of sex. And, uh, and in fact, I've had some conversations with um, a sexologist uh, on this subject, and he, he said to me, um, it's an amazing thing, he said, uh, you wouldn't believe how many people I see who just touching their genitals uh, induces an enormous wave of guilt in them because they were raised to believe these are this is dirty, don't touch this, and they're still dealing with the consequences as as adults. So yeah, I think that that's probably accurate. Have you have you noticed um, you know the websites the Jewish circumcision or Jews against circumcision? Have you noticed any sort of um, like in the United States, there's more and more people that are becoming against the practice. Have you noticed? any trend that way within the Jewish culture or do you think it's still people insistent on holding on to the tradition? Um, I have not noticed any movement in that direction beyond um, what I would say is a sort of I think people are more vocal now in general about all sorts of issues and I think part of that is the age we're living in social media and um, you know, communication is just shared in a much more efficient manner, and people have much, many more tools to have their voices heard. Um, so I think there is a bit of an optical illusion that occurs um, as a result of that, in which it seems like there are more Jews who are questioning this. Um, and what I think it is is just that there have always been Jews who question this, and um, there we just hear from them more now because there are more ways to hear from them: uh, the internet, social media. Um, you know, independent filmmaking. Um, so, um, and I, you know, but I, I, I don't want, how do I put this? I, I think that there are um, two groups of people in this country when it comes to this issue. There are people who have thought about circumcision and there are people who haven't really thought about circumcision. Um, and the, peop the people who haven't thought about it are, are the vast, vast majority, okay? And these people, um, this is where you hear the, well, I want him to look like me, or, you know, it's cleaner, or it's healthier. This sort of throw out um, knee-jerk cultural response to criticism of this practice. Those are the people who haven't really thought about it, vast majority of people. Um, the people who have thought about it can be broken down into a number of groups as well, I think. Um, you have intactivists who are against the practice. You have religious fundamentalists who are aware of what the practice is and are okay with it, just like Rabbi Hershey Warsh in the film who said, God told me to do this. I know it's abusive. I'm doing it. And then you have um, the sort of cultural relativists who say, well, we think female genital cutting should also be allowed because it's a cultural practice and cultural practices come from particular cultural contexts and we shouldn't be dictating to other cultures uh, what they should or shouldn't be doing. Um, now, I think that once you get people from the not knowing category into the knowing category, the vast majority of people are going to break for the intactivist perspective. 
I don't think most people are going to be comfortable with the cultural relativist perspective, and I don't think most people are going to be comfortable with the religious fundamentalist perspective. And that, besides, is just a fringe sort of Jewish side show. Um, but so to me, the the key is um, presenting the information accurately, and the truth is on the side of those who are against this. I mean, it's it's so clear and evident. The challenge is getting people that first step over the hump of the discomfort of talking about it. But once you get them in, once you get people sitting down and watching a film like this, once you get people talking about it critically and on a high level, um, I think things are going to I think things are going to really, really change. Now, this to me is why what happened in San Francisco this summer Although, from a certain perspective, you can look at it and say there was such a backlash that maybe it was counterproductive. But the one thing that they did with this ballot initiative in San Francisco that I think is really, really um, great is that for two solid months, the media's attention was focused on this issue. And that's the hardest thing to do. The hardest thing to do is to get people to talk about it. And once you can get them talking about it, and again, two solid months of media attention. And I don't think these people thought that the ballot was going to pass. I don't think they had any illusions about it. I think the idea was let's, let's, let's do something sensational so that more people will talk about it. And I, again, I, and I think from this perspective, what they did was a huge success because they got people talking about it. And once you get people talking about it, the number that will break uh, for the intactivist perspective, for the anti-circumcision perspective, I think will be the vast majority. One last question for me. Why do you think that there aren't any um, circumcision information um, advertisements on TV, public announcements? You know, you hear about a four-hour erection, but you can't mention the fact that the woman has an orgasm, and it's the same way with circumcision. You don't see anything about it, and yet you have to hear about hemorrhoids and all this other stuff. It's a good question. Why is it that this subject uh, is so uncomfortable for us as a culture to talk about? And I think the bottom line is that um, we as a culture are on some level uncomfortable with what's being done to boys, but we don't really want to go there. Do you feel there's a kind of a reverse anti-Semitism among the Jewish community, um, kind of shunning uh, the children that may have not been circumcised? When you say reverse anti-Semitism, what do you mean? Maybe that's not the best word, but um, whatever the word would mean, where inside the Jewish community, um, if someone wasn't circumcised, they're kind of you know shunned upon or... I, I guess you will can't use the word racism, but there'd be some some kind of ism against discrimination. Them. Or discrimination, that's a better word. You know, I, look, in fairness, there aren't that many intact Jewish guys out there. That's I got to say that I know there are some and I've, I'm meeting some on this tour. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think so. And I here's here's part of my issue with the way people always talk about the shame issue in the locker room and all this stuff. I just don't remember spending that much time thinking about or worrying about my fellow's penises when I was in those situations, nor did I think about my, I mean, you know, I guess to a certain extent you look when you're in the locker room or when you're at a gym or something, but it's not like, um, 
it's not like it was openly discussed or, you know, I don't know. I, th- it's a very strange thing to me. It, it smacks to me of um, a sort of invented problem as opposed to an actual problem. Maybe I'm wrong. The truth is I've heard some people who said that, you know, they were embarrassed. I don't think that Jewish intact boys would be shunned. I don't know who would know. I mean, I, I suppose if the parents made a big stink about it and, you know, everyone found out that way or something, um, or if the kid himself decided that this is something he wanted to make an issue out of, but I don't know. I just, that's not the kind of thing that I see as an actual real problem in the real world, as much as it is an invented reason for continuing a, a practice that's problematic. And why do you feel that the Jewish community has a need to push circumcision out to the general public? that are not Jewish? I don't think that... I wouldn't put it that way. Um, I don't... Even, like, the most recent reaction against what was going on in San Francisco, I don't see that as part of a Jewish campaign to make sure that circumcision remains a commonly practiced surgical procedure so that they can feel more comfortable. I really don't. Um, even uh, Rabbi Roteach, the, the celebrity rabbi that I debated at the, at the beginning of the summer, um, when I really looked closely at what he was saying, I mean, he was way off. He was like, this is a radicalist, secular agenda. But he was framing it as um, a sort of attack on religious freedom uh, because there was no religious exception in this particular bill, not as like, a, we want to make sure that the non-Jews continue to do this. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't really see that the Jewish community is doing that. I I mean they are the the best organized minority in the history of democracy. And I say that with admiration um and a little touch of pride maybe. Um you know, I wish they'd organize around things that I thought were worth organizing around and I wish they weren't, you know, a lot of things, but organized they are. Effective, extremely effective. Um, and when they sense that an issue that they consider to be important to their constituents is threatened, they send in the attack dogs. And Jewish American attack dogs get things done in a very, very uh, effective way. Again, in San Francisco, when they, when they had it, well, it's been removed from the ballot, now they're going to pass that law to say that I think no city in California can outlaw infant circumcision or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, that's what they've done. That's right. That's what's happened. And all of the Democrats, and I think maybe, I don't know if Republicans are involved either, but they're not raising a stink about what's going on at all. No, that's right. And so. But again, and let's look at this dispassionately for a second because I think there's a lesson to be learned from the discipline in this organization. Um, they felt that something that was important to their constituents was threatened, they went nuclear, and and they made it happen. Uh, they not only got the initiative struck off of the ballot in San Francisco and put pressure on the proponent in Santa Monica to withdraw her ballot proposition also, they made it so that it's now impossible to introduce that kind of a ballot initiative statewide. And that comes, that ability to do that comes from organization. It's not, it's not about money. I mean, money helps, but it's that is about organization. That's about being able to call the right phone numbers and, uh, you know, start letter writing campaigns and get 
people in political office scared about something. Do you think something like, do you think something like that's going to have to end up in the Supreme Court now? Because there's a lot of speculation that what's going on is not legally kosher. What do you mean, going? As far as trying to make it to where it can never be outlawed. Infant circumcision cannot be outlawed in California. I'm not a legal scholar, um, and I'm not sure how it would get to the Supreme Court from where it is now. But um, I'd love to see a, a, a case about circumcision get to the Supreme Court. Um, I think recently, like a few years ago, there was a, a case that got to the Oregon Supreme Court. Um, there was a custody battle over a child. And I really, I think the, the judge showed an enormous amount of common sense um, by allowing the child to decide whether or not he wanted to be circumcised. By the time the case was over, I think the kid was 14 or 15. And he decided that he didn't want to be circumcised, even though his father was pressuring him to. And his mother was fighting the father over that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it'll be very interesting to see what kind of cases emerge and, and, and move on this issue going forward. Um, but I wouldn't, I would caution anyone who's passionate about this subject to not put too much stock in the legal side of it. Not least of which because I don't think the chances of success uh, in getting this practice outlawed, I think they're, they're virtually nil. But more importantly because the work ne that needs to be done, I, I don't think the law should proceed public consciousness on this issue. I think it should happen the other way around. I think, and I, and again, it's really just about getting the information to people. If you get the information to people in an accurate fashion and you let them decide, they will decide not to circumcise. The vast majority of people will. But you got to start, you got to sort of, again, get over that hump. And uh, that's the challenge, I think. Why do you feel most intactivists are women? <laughs> You know, if you had said that to me like three weeks ago before the tour started, I would have been like, really? I didn't know that. Um, but, John, you're the first uh, male organizer uh, <laughs> on the tour, and I'm starting to get the sense that a lot of intactivists are women. Um, I don't know. Uh, in my film, I tried to show that, uh, you know, it cuts beyond gender, that there's uh, there are proponents and, and opponents on both on both sides of the gender divide and I, I still think that's true to a large extent um, but I also think that women are forced to think about uh, issues related to child rearing and childbirth in a much more critical fashion than men are typically um, and that's just uh, by virtue of their biology and the fact that they're they're in that kind of proximity to the process. Now, this is, again, wild generalization here because, you know, you have people on both sides that don't conform to this stereotype that I'm drawing here. But, um, you know, I think also a lot of fathers are not so involved in the nitty-gritty of the raising of the children. Um, and, of course, if they're circumcised, then... Um, to suggest that their child, that their baby boy won't be circumcised is to say something very uncomfortable about something that happened to them and their psychological barriers going on there also. Um, so yeah, I don't, I mean, I think that uh, I've been so impressed by the women I've been meeting who said to me, 
I circumcised my first two boys and the third one I couldn't do. And telling me how, because I've also encountered women who are really defensive, um, having circumcised their boys. And when I bring the subject up, they get angry and defensive about it because, again, accepting part or all of what I'm saying would, would implicate them in a very negative way. So that's why I'm so impressed when I meet these mothers who are like, you know, I did it to my first two kids. Uh, I just couldn't do it to my third. I started learning about it and I, I realized what a horrible thing I had done to my first two boys. And I started remembering all these things that were happening while they were in the process of healing from the circumcision. Um, and that's just remarkable. Or someone like Marilyn Milos, who having circumcised three of her children had an encounter with circumcision and devoted her life to trying to change the situation in this country, which is an amazing, it takes courage to be able both as a man and as a woman to see this practice for what it is. It's a different kind of psychological courage because as a woman, as a mother who's done this to her children, you're admitting something about your parenting. Uh, as a man, you're admitting something about, you know, the most important part of your body art, arguably, especially you know, I mean, the penis is given so much cultural power to admit that you are damaged on that most important of organs is a different kind of psychological challenge that a lot of guys have difficulty with. And, and you know, when people are presented this information, when people see my film, sometimes a reaction is, um, you know, deep feelings of inadequacy and anger. Um, so, yeah. Men in general aren't as most verbal creatures there are. So in your interviews, do you get a general sense or feeling how circumcised men feel toward intact men? Huh. I think um, the only thing I've noticed on along those lines is that there's a little wistfulness, uh, sort of what could have been. Uh, in fact, in an earlier Q&A in Albuquerque, um, one of the audience members said, yeah, I heard what your brother was saying. And, you know, um, every guy thinks what could have been. Um, but I think that the male mode around this, the circumcised male mode around this, for the most part, is much more about denial. Um, and to get a to get a guy who's been circumcised past that or past this just sort of apathy of, well, I don't know what I'm missing, so who cares, which is also a defense mechanism, I think. Um, that's tricky. Yeah. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www dot cut the film dot com.